God bless you today. It's always a joy to have you here. And, you know, sometimes Your thousand dollars cannot reproduce until it enters into a covenant with the soul. church will pick at their funeral. You can put that thousand We will remind the living that you can still repent and obey. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mor Mormonism, Biblical Christianity meets American Evangelicalism face-to-face, -face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to participate in this ministry. May He be with you and us tonight. A number of people have had some questions about the program, so let's get to them right off the bat. Number one, are you going to be taking calls, Mr. McCraney? Yes, we are. As soon as we get into the heart of the matter, streaming studios, otherwise known as hot mess. Uh, Heart of the Matter Streaming Studios, uh, we will be doing the uh, live calls from there. So, uh, certainly, but not now, and that will be up in the next few weeks. I, uh, second thing, people are saying, I miss the old set, so do we. So we have uh, a semblance of the old set at the new Hot Mass <laughs> Studios. And once again, when we move in, we will be shooting from it. Number three, are you still going to be talking about LDS things? Absolutely. The ministry was founded on our outreach to LDS people, and we're never going to completely get away from it. In fact, 90% of our emails still relate to Mormonism. The only thing we're doing differently is we're placing this year's emphasis, our focus, if you will, on American evangelicalism as a whole so as to warn and guide people who are seeking, whether they are coming out of Mormonism or another faith, what to look for when they go to a church. In the end, I think that this segment uh, of Heart of the Matter will uh, do good things for Latter-day Saints and others who are seeking for truth. And finally, uh, how can we learn more about your ministry? There's several ways. First, check out our websites, www.bornagainmormon.com, www.hotm.tv, and www.campus.com, and there's hyphens between the, the letters of campus. A little bit hard to write, but once you get it in that, in that, you can reuse it over and over. Or you can go to YouTube, you can type in Sean McCraney, or Heart of the Matter, or Jackasses on Fire. I'm just kidding about that last one. And, well, I think I am. And in any case, you can type those things in, and our, we have 2,000 plus video clips that will come up. And then if you live in Utah, you can tune into AM820, that's a radio station here, and uh, listen to Heart of the Matter on Sundays from 1 to 2. And then finally, you can tune in beginning April 5th, that's a Friday, to the NRB Network on DirecTV and watch Heart of the Matter at 10 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Pacific. Uh, you can also watch on Tuesdays in the early morning. Just go to uh, the NRB. We hope to be on cable TV through the NRB station within the next uh, year to 18 months. Got all that? It'll sink in over time. Stay with us. Over the years uh, examining Mormonism, we would take a small part of each program and get into the Word. 
we figure we might as well do the same thing relative to American evangelical Christianity this year. And in doing so, what I'm going to do is pull out a biblical premise that is clearly taught and explain it and then kind of compare it to what's going on in the church today. So most of these uh, presentations, we used to call it from the word when we were talking about Mormonism specifically, but they're going to start off with a question. So here's my question. If the Bible is literally the Word of God, as most Christians teach and and believe and emphasize, if it truly came from his mouth, so to speak, to the ear of inspired men who wrote it down, and if we believe that it was passed down and great care was taken to translate it so that people can read it and learn to comprehend him and know him and understand him better, I want to know why any Christian pastor would not use it in his weekly teachings and sermons. Think about it. Christians and Christianity have gone to a lot of trouble proclaiming that the Bible is God's literal word. That is God speaking to men who wrote his words down. We have stressed that and stressed that and stressed it. And that, but there are pastors who... They'll refer to it, you know, a couple times, or they'll paraphrase what it says. You know, there's a story in the Bible, it's about a guy named Samson, and then they put it in their own words and kind of tell it. Instead of reading what God's Word literally had inspired writers write, they will paraphrase it, or they avoid it altogether. They don't even, they don't even reference it. They just tell anecdotal stories about, about their life and, and things that are going on and, and positive mental attitudes and Joel Osteen stuff, and they don't open the Word of God. So why on earth would any pastor, true pastor anywhere, do these things when they not only have the opportunity to get their flock to read the Word themselves, but they have the responsibility to uh, get them and direct them to it uh, and feed them from it? What is going on uh, is people are flowing in and out of many churches. They're never opening their own Bibles, never reading the words God has with their own eyes, and never learning to understand what God is saying to them in a contextual way. And if the Bible contains God's real words, why are pastors using PowerPoint presentations just to highlight specific passages or whatever, instead of getting people to to bring their own Bibles and open them up and learn to read it. It would be like training police officers through PowerPoint and saying, here is a picture of a gun. This is what a gun does. Bang, bang. And these are the types of guns that are out there. But never allowing a police officer to have a gun on his own and learn to use it and how it operates and to clean it and everything else. People should be having their Bibles so that they learn to where the books are and how to read it and where things are. But you don't do that when you remove them and you, you put in something in place so that it's convenient for the pastors to have everybody looking at them, egocentric beggars, and, you know, look at me, look at me. Don't look down. In fact, in the Mormon church, they even put out this thing from the bishop saying, do not from the pulpit say, please turn to. Did you know that? They want everybody focused on the person speaking. They don't want them to actually turn to the scriptures that are being cited. Since his words will last forever, shouldn't churches and pastors treat him that way? Psalms 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Isaiah 48 says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of God shall stand forever. Jesus said in Matthew 24.35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words 
will never pass away. Peter, uh, one of the Lord's apostles, wrote in 1 Peter 1.25, But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So Peter, who was an apostle, said, it, The things that we say, that is how you learn what the gospel is. God himself says in Psalms uh, 138.2 that he esteems his word in a higher favor than he does his own name, Yahweh, or uh, or whatever uh, he's gone by uh, in Scripture. He esteems his word of more import. The, the one-two combination of the word combined with the workings of the Holy Spirit uh, is how Christians know how to be Christians. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Second Peter 1.21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men. Peter says, listen, these guys didn't sit out there in the field and suddenly say, hey, I think I'm going to write a book about Scripture. I'm going to call it Amos and say this is what God said. It didn't come by their will to sit down and pump, pump out some book. He says, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. I mean, Scripture tells us that this is where these words came from, and yet they're not reading it in church. Church, they're not reading it. Scripture tells us that the word, not a pastor's intelligence or good humor or ability to tell stories, furnishes light to the human soul. Jeremiah 23, 29 says the word of God is a crushing hammer. You know why? Because when you read it and hear it, you say, oh, boy, I'm really falling off the mark. But it reassures you, too, in your walk with Christ. Ephesians 6, 17 says, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, that all familiar, for the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Interestingly, the Bible says the word purifies life. Uh, Ephesians 5.26 suggests that it has washing capabilities. You take the former man or woman, and when you read and hear the word by your pastor from the pulpit, reading it, that it washes out all those soulish inclinations that we carry about with us. Even the Lord, when confronted by Satan in the wilderness, he responded to Satan with every single comeback by prefacing it with, It is written. It is written. It is written. He relied on that Old Testament. Relative to the Old Testament, Romans 15, 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Talking about the Old Testament. That we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. That's what it says. And so you read those stories about those guys and women who went through such trials. And we read about them in Hebrews 11, the, uh, the Hall of Fame of Faith. And we read about the trials. We learn to have hope and to wait and to trust on God and how he does things. And then relative to the New Testament, listen to what John says in 1 John 5.13. These things, John says, have I written, okay, unto you, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. He says he has written these things so that you can know you have eternal life. I mean, right there, that's invaluable. So... If these things have been written by men inspired of God, we ought to read them, show ourselves approved. Listen to what Jesus said, final scripture. It is the spirit that quickens, the flesh profits nothing. Okay? He says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. 
So God here himself in the flesh, he says, the flesh profits nothing but the words I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. This is what, and yet, and yet, and yet, church after church, church after mega freaking church, hip, cool, rad church, do everything today, but lead people to open those books and take the time. See, yeah, sometimes it can be boring, difficult to understand, but take the time to read the Word. If your church is one of them, approach your pastor, say, we want to hear you teach the Word, and if he doesn't care enough about feeding the flock, run from him and go to somebody who will. All right, I received this email today. As a, uh, uh, it's from Steve H. It says, hey, Sean, just some thoughts. Anytime someone receives the backlash from the status quo like you got on January 1st, can know Satan doesn't want them poking around. It's funny, there are local pastors here in Salt Lake City openly telling others that I am of the devil because I am trying to examine the so-called church today. That is how bad it's gotten. They become so fearful of their complacent religious machine being harmed by investigation, they are telling people that uh, I am of the devil. Well, I am of the devil in my flesh, but of my spirit, I am of God. The second thought Steve shares is, anytime we institutionalize, we're prone to fossilize. When you institutionalize, you fossilize. He says, the body of Christ is alive, growing, breathing, and loving. Amen. You know, part of what I've always done since I can remember is to kind of look about at what's going on around and to what, what's being demanded and what's being accepted by everybody, to sit and look at it and then to say to myself, why do we do this? What, what are we doing this for? Why do we do this stuff? And then I also think, there must be other people who are saying the same things to themselves. So when I looked around at the Christian church, I said, why are we doing this? And then I said to myself, there must be people who are saying you know, the same thing to themselves. And we have discovered that's true. There are many people who have been saying, what is going on around us that church has become this? So uh, that's why, you know, when I was LDS, I'd go to these steak dances they'd have, and they'd open up with a prayer asking that the Spirit would be with them. Oh, send the Spirit to be with me. And then they'd uh, turn on ACDC and get, try to see how close they could get to the girl next to them. I never understood why do they always open with a prayer when the follow-up activity is purely carnal? And, and why do bishops always want to know how far I got with a girl? And, and they want to know the details. What's the point? Why do they do that? So... That is what religion does. And so you have an obligation to kind of sit and look and say, you know, this is what the Word says. Why are we doing this? There must be other people who think the same way. And I came to realize that religion, whether it's Mormon or a Christian church, is, that has established order does not want change. They don't want to be called out. Finally, Steve writes, true Christianity is growing, alive, breathing, loving. Amen to that. In conclusion, he says, the scriptural will always trump the traditional. Amen. Or at least it should. Over the course of the year, I promise to bring to you the scriptural relative to what is being done in the churches today. It's going to get really uncomfortable, I'll promise you. But I'm convinced that it will do more to help people coming out of Mormonism to assimilate into the body of Christ and other people who are trying to say, hey, what is going on around us? Are there other people who feel the same way? So pray for us as we go about this endeavor. Before we get into our message tonight, how about a word of prayer? Father God, we need you, Lord. We uh, seek you in all things. We pray that those errors that I am certain to make, those, uh, those failures in logic, times when I say things I probably shouldn't, 
will be forgotten and forgiven, but that you will reach us with your spirit wherever we are and teach us what you want us to know in these troubling days that we are living in. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we talked about culture and how often when it comes to organized religion, it's the result of legalisms, laws, the culture, and strictly held interpretations of what should be and what should not be. And while there are unique and varied cultural applications found in almost every walk of life, baseball has its culture, tiddlywink players have their culture, chess players have their culture, the fascinating thing about culture is the general framework that is underlying each of them is rarely altogether unique. The general framework that establishes culture is very much the same. The counterculture revolution of the 1960s with the hippies was absolutely no different than the punk movement of the late 1970s. It's just the hair lengths were different. They were still rebelling against society. It's just in the 60s they approached it in a different way. So I remember as an active and participative Latter-day Saint, I thought our specific culture, Mormon culture, I took comfort in that our culture was truly ours and unique to us because we were the true church. And much of this myopathy was a result of having insulated myself from experiencing what other churches did. And so I thought, you know, when we did this certain thing, that only Mormons do that because this is the true church. So our culture, you know, I didn't view it as culture. Our ways are so unique to us. Uh, So... But I, as I got out into the Christian world, I realized that the culture, cultural framework is very much the same. Back in Huntington Beach, where I grew up, there's an apartment complex uh, within the stake, the Mormon stake, that's a lot of congregations in one place. There's an apartment complex, and it's full of young married Mormon couples, and uh, it was referred to by the LDS people in the area as Mormon Manor. Oh, they live in Mormon Manor, Mormon Manor. And, you know, when I was LDS, I thought, oh, you know, Mormon Manor, that, you know, that's just our little thing. And when I became a Christian, I was actively involved in Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, which is only about 10 miles away from uh, the Mormon Manor. And I learned that right across the street from Calvary Chapel is a large apartment complex where most of the young married Christians live. And they called that the Gospel Gulch. And, and, and when I heard that, I thought, people are people. We have culture and we just, we think it's unique to us. What was really amazing is the fact that the young Christians I associated with thought that Calvary Chapel was the proprietor of a really original thinking. That, that, that gospel goats, well, I mean, I mean, that's our Calvary Chapel thing. No one else has something like that. And they didn't even realize that whether you're in a, a Mormonism, a cult that they would preach against, or a Christian church or whatever, culture is culture. Mormons have what they have call uh, Mormon Standard Time. And what that refers to is everybody coming late to the meetings. Oh, they're on Mormon Standard Time. And they, you know, smarmily would think that is so unique and cute. But the Christians at Calvary Chapel have the Calvary, they're on the Calvary Chapel clock. That means they would show up late to everything. There's no difference, you see. This is how people are. So quite honestly, the more engaged with Christians I became, Uh, I find that from almost any denomination, the more I was able to see that cultural comparatives um, uh, exist between them all, all right? In other words, those who have a heart to serve and volunteer in the Christian church are typically very much like those who serve and volunteer within the Mormon church. 
and probably like those who serve and volunteer within Islam. And those who give really big financially in the Mormon church are typically, not always, similar to those who give big financially in the Christian church. They, they typically live off the same principles. And there are always present in any religion those who consider themselves the intellectuals of the group and the holy ones. There's those who are down and out. There's those who never fit in. There's the failures. There's those who have their education and they let you know where they matriculated and got their degrees. And there are those who are uneducated and, uh, and they don't have those degrees under their belt. There's always these people types within every single group. Show me a pious attitude in a Mormon and I can instantly introduce you to the same attitude in a Christian. All right? So show me a legalistic or liberal Christian, either side of the polar, polarized ends, and I can show you mirror images in Mormonism. So the bottom line is people are people. And uh, religious people are very similar to other religious people. So. A person who follows, whether it's Joseph Smith or, or Chuck Smith or Mr. Smith going to Washington, they, uh, they are going to be very similar except in those areas when Jesus is present or absent. Show me somebody who is a big contributor who is a Mormon who lacks Jesus and a big contributor who is Christian who has Jesus. And I'll show you a very different picture between those two, you know, typically. And now there can be Christians who don't have Jesus who give too, and, but they're very much the same. But when you bring Jesus into it, you take all the cultural applications and you lose those peculiarities. I mean, you lose those similarities and you come up with these peculiarities that exist in people of faith. That is why Christianity is not found, does not have its own uh, culture. Now, I had trouble with these similarities when I first came out of Mormonism and what we could label American Evangelical Christianity. Stupidly, I assumed, you talk about naivete, I assumed that pastors were pastors like the Bible would talk about. I assumed that if, they, if you were a pastor, you would be like Peter or Paul or Mary. <laughs> um, but, I mean, so, and I assume that Christians were biblical Christians. And it doesn't take long to step from one into the other and see, no, it's not true. In the end, what I discovered was religious people are religious people, and those who truly love Jesus are those who truly love Jesus. This is partially what prompted me to take the stance that we did in the early part of the ministry to say that a Latter-day Saint uh, I said something to the effect that I don't care what church a person goes to as long as they have been born again, born of the Spirit. If they, uh, and if they had been born of the Spirit, we would leave it up to God to direct them into what church they would want to associate with. Now, while this stance was certainly attacked and maligned by my so-called Christian brothers and sisters out there, we've never recanted that position. Uh, I'm convinced that there, uh, uh, that there are in history a universe of uh, Christians who are not involved in Christianity. Yeah, I'll say that again. I am convinced there are in the history of our universe Christians who are not involved in Christianity. That means that there are people who do know who Christ is who might be Muslim or some other faith. 
at least in their practice, not in their doctrine, not in their heart toward Jesus Christ. You see, and there's a big difference there. So, uh, I have always maintained and will forever maintain that there probably are LDS people who are far better Christians than I will ever be and will stand before the judgment bar of Christ and will be completely accepted in, in, uh, by Him and invited into the kingdom. And I have always maintained that there are plenty of Catholics, Baptists, non-denominationalists, born-agains, etc., who don't know who He is, even though they go to church every week, you see. So, uh, the question then remains, what is Christianity? What is Christianity? Do we find it completely housed in a single church? The Mormons would say yes. Of course, we would say emphatically no. Last week, I ardently argued that true Christianity start, stands far afield from culture, all culture. Uh, uh, instead, it reaches in and it embraces those who play football or chess or are skateboarders or are this or that. Christians embrace those cultures instead of creating their own. But contrary to what many people will attempt to suggest, there is no accepted Christian culture, though many men and women have worked really hard to establish one. And this is what I want to touch on tonight and introduce to you as part of the foundation of the rest of the programs for the year. The varied attempts men and women have made to establish a Christian culture through a plethora of various and errant means. Why do this, Sean? Why take the time to do it? One of the first things needed to get to the truth of an issue is to remove the error. It's impossible to really hold the truth in freedom and in joy and in liberty if the error is riding right along with it because people who are part of it from the beginning can't tease the two apart. So, I mean, imagine that you belong to a, a church that calls itself Christian and that it teaches Jesus is God came in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, resurrected the third day, ascended into heaven, and it is by your faith and belief on him that you will be saved. Uh, uh, but that same church also holds all night long teachings where the pastor teaches throughout the night the adults about what they should understand about the Bible and what they shouldn't. And they also teach that children should be publicly spanked disciplined in the church to show them that the church has rule over the life and they also introduced the fact that the wives, the attractive wives of the male members need to go and become partners with the pastor so that they can really show devotion to the church and God's movement here on earth. Would it be right to criticize and examine this church and pastor and, ex and, and seek to remove the error from the truth so that the people involved in that could be free of the truth and the truth alone? Of course it would. And only those who would be af afraid of being exposed, who are afraid of being exposed, would say otherwise, you see. By the way, I just described the People's Temple and Jim Jones and what he did in the San Francisco Bay Area before they moved to Guyana. So, too extreme an example for you? You want something more down to earth? Should churches be examined and called out if they endorse and support lesser religious crimes? I mean, what if a church is, is worshiping God and mammon? The two at the same time. Jesus says you can't do it. What if a church is doing it? Or what if they burden their congregation with constant petitions to pay a tithe 
and they say it's a minimum uh, standard. Or they endorse uh, crappy Christian literature constantly. Like, go and get this latest book. It's really good over the pulpit. And the people run to their bookstore to buy that that book. Uh, I am going to speak in some broad terms now in describing the Christian church today, modern American evangelicalism. I'm going to use some illustrations to help set the foundation of what we're going to examine for the rest of this year. Generally speaking, let me try and describe American evangelicalism using an example of an umbrella. Okay, I'm going to use two parts to this umbrella. I know there are many more. The top nylon part of this umbrella we're going to call American evangelicalism is Jesus. It is Jesus, and whether he's Jesus, the low derelict on the cross, described in Isaiah, who suffered for our sin, or it's handsome, buffed-out surfer Jesus with dimples and perfect teeth. It is Jesus. That is the umbrella covering, the black part that umbrellas typically are. Okay, The handle part that upholds that in American evangelicalism is typically political conservatism. That handle. And so we have the umbrella of American evangelicalism being the nylon part called Jesus and a conservative political platform upon which they stand. Right-wingedness, if you will. Uh, Definitely pro-guns and paradoxically pro-life. They bleed red, white, and blue. Uh, Under this illustrative umbrella composed of the American Jesus, the fabric, and the American political conservatism, the post holding it up, we can find almost any single American evangelical uh, sitting under that post. I don't care if they're driving a Lexus and wearing seersucker suits and have a position on the New York Stock Exchange, or if they are going to the Bayou Bible study tonight to handle snakes and eat alligator paw. They are all under the umbrella called American Evangelicalism, which is Jesus, Jesus, the Lord, or, and political conservatism. Okay, you got that? Now, as a means to get a little more specific, under the shared umbrella, we're going to find two individuals. All right? This is taking the, the out more so you can understand what the church generally, I know there, there are specifics and exceptions to this, but generally, this is what we are seeing. We have the umbrella. Under it are two large individuals seeking protection from from this world, all right? The first we're going to call Christian fundamentalists, okay? That's one of those individuals. And the second we're going to call Christian Laodiceans, Christian fundamentalists, Christian Laodiceans underneath the umbrella. Christian fundamentalists have, in my opinion, embarrassed the living hell out of our sacred biblical faith through an assortment of ridiculous religious antics. Uh, These antics include everything from enforcing and rejecting people who don't comply, uh, certain dress style, certain hairstyle, certain decor, typically gaudy, uh, music style, lifestyle. They may be Sabbatarians. You have to obey Sunday. They could be faith healers, so-called tongue speakers with or without interpreters in the middle of church, dancers and those slain in the spirit, dancing in the spirit, slain in the spirit, holy rollers, word of faith promoters, which includes health and wealth people, 
uh, platforms, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, you name it, they've got it there, they've got it all listed, this is of Jesus, the Lord wants you to be rich. I mean, it, it, it's really amazing. We have dominion uh, theologians, dominionists. These are typically very powerful uh, Christian men in, in, in political circles who believe that Christianity needs to take over and govern the world prior to Jesus' coming, and a whole host of other things that they do in Jesus' name. Laughing in the Lord. I mean, that was a huge movement where everybody in the church, <laughs> that's the Holy Spirit taking over these people. Laughing in the Lord, they called it. All right? Now, you're changing channels. You want truth in your life. And you come across this? I mean, really? And yet the body itself has not been able to govern itself and not been able to say, look it. This is ridiculous. What, you know what people say? Oh, God can use it. God can use it. You know, they, they love saying that. God can, God can use anything. I get that. But he gave us his word to kind of show us an outline of how he does things, didn't he? And I don't remember reading, slain in the spirit, laughing in the Lord, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, anywhere in there. All right? So, typically with the Christian fundamentalists under that umbrella, there is very little room from those who really live it, who are truly Christian fundamentalists, when it comes to other ideas relative to creation, Evolution, science, science doesn't exist. It just, it just doesn't. Everything in science is either wrong or is completely understood. Look, let me explain this as I, before I go on. I believe the Bible is perfect. I believe it, it is God's word, but I believe it is misunderstood by men. And so when we read certain things within it and we apply our understanding to it, it doesn't mean God's word is wrong. It means men's understanding and their application of what it says is wrong. So they're very, they're very uh, unfriendly to ideas of science and divorce explanations of the flood. Did it, was it worldwide? Was it not? Even talking about that gets their dander up. Old earth, new earth, abortion. They are often uber literalists. This is what the Bible says. This is exactly what it means. And, but when the Bible does say something that cannot be taken literally and they know it, they will call that poetic. So they will use the word according to their um, particular need and not use it intellectually with intellectual honesty. All right? And uh, they differ, uh, to differ with them will almost always result in you being labeled a heretic or being, uh, or them saying something to the effect of, I don't think you're born again. I don't think you're, you're born again. They, they, they actually will look at somebody square in the face who loves the Lord and say, I don't think you're born again. I mean, it's really, really an amazing little culture. All right. And sometimes these folks out of real true devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ will even get to the point of hating and killing others. So that's what you get when you get to Christian fundamentalism that is alive and well in America and the world today. And if we're, we're going to pull from a plethora of characters that the media presents to us as a picture of the true Christian fundamentalist, I can't think of a better picture than Dana Carvey's church lady. Dana Carvey's church lady, is, is, uh, his characterizations were not far-fetched. They are very difficult people to, um, to not smile at and also to not let them get under your skin. And as Christians, we're supposed to love each other. And if you're a real Christian, you've got to love the church lady. 
But nevertheless, you will call the church lady out on stuff that she's slightly off, right? And uh, so as a means to lay the solid foundation on our study of American evangelicalism, we're going to look at Christian fundamentalists first, all right? We're going to look at all that they do and all that they're about. Listen, and we're going to use the actual Bible and what it says relative to all their claims. We're going to look at name it and claim it. We're going to look at faith healing. We're going to look at the context and all of the things that they majorly stand on so we can see, are they wrong or not? Isn't that special? So, all right. Now, I don't believe for a second that Dana Carvey's character is the product of Satan and was created as a means to under, undermine Christianity, good Christians. I don't believe that. Um, I personally see it as a humorous attempt to reveal how absolutely and utterly ridiculous um, that Christian fundamentalist attitudes can become over time. So let's call them into question, in love, call them into check, and say this is not biblical, so we can lay something out that way. All right. Standing abreast to this. Can I say that? Standing abreast to this, uh, right next to Church Lady, we have the embodiment of the other side in American evangelicalism, and that's what I call Christian Laodiceans. Christian Laodiceans, the other side of uh, Church Lady. For those of you who are unaware, in the book of Revelation, Jesus comes to John on the Isle of Patmos, and he, gives, he speaks to him his revelation. It's not John's revelations, it's Jesus. And uh, he, he represents, at one part of that revelation, seven periods of time that I believe represent seven periods of the Christian church. And he talks about seven real churches that existed back in the day, in the early church. And, he's, and this church, he says, has done this, and I'm pleased with them. This church has done that. I don't like what they've done. This church has done that. And each of those churches individually represent an epoch of time in Christian history. Well, uh, he mentions a church called Laodicea. And it's mentioned in, in, in Revelations uh, 3, uh, beginning, at, I think, at verse 14. It was located about 40 miles um, east of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, on the banks of the Lycus River. It was named Laodicea after Laodice, the wife of Antiochus II, king of Syria, who rebuilt that area. Now, early in Christian history, it's be, it became one of the chief places of Christianity. All right? And regarding it, and what I believe, as I said, simultaneously describes the ch- Christian church today. It's the last church, the seventh church. It, uh, Jesus says this in Revelation 3.15 of the church of Laodicea, I know your works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would, he says, Jesus, that thou were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, he says, neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, listen, I am rich and then increased with goods, and have need of nothing. That's how the the Laodicean church describes itself. I am rich, I'm increased with goods, I have need of nothing. Jesus says, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. That's what the Lord says about the Laodicean church. In his criticism, the Lord himself describes them not as hot, not as on fire, like you might describe the uh, fundamentalists, and not cold, but lukewarm. 
of faith and love toward him and others and says that he would rather have them hot for him or cold for him, but their lukewarmness is so revolting, he wants to spit them right out. See, cold refreshes and hot sanitizes, but lukewarm is always just a pit for germs to grow. And that's the picture of the Laodicean church. So maybe we could say that Christ was telling the believers at Laodicea, step up, you know, either hate me, be cold, or, or, uh, or love me. Be on fire for me. Be a fool for Christ. Go ahead and show your faith and talk about Jesus to people who don't care. But get rid of your lukewarmness. That's what he seems to be the message to me. So, you know, be willing to step into a coliseum and full of lions and say, I'm a Christian. That's the kind of fervor I think that, that he likes. Uh, be ready to live like Christ in your service to others and how you help others with things that are unseen, the stuff that you do for people that no one else knows about. Be that type of Christ to others and turn from your lukewarm existence uh, and you're kind of splitting between the things of eternity and the things of this world. The attitude of the, of the church at Laodicea was produced because of wealth. The Lord says that they are lukewarm for their ties to this world and has them say of themselves, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. This is not talking about individuals who have been blessed with, with money and people who have been successful. This is talking about the church, the church that is full of wealth and riches and big buildings and big budgets and big programs and big, big, big. And he is saying, you, you, you think you're, you have need of nothing. You have need of everything, he says. In spite of their material wealth, he says, you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. If we could liken the fundamentalist church to church lady uh, parody, we might liken the Christian Laodiceans to Kim Kardashian. Uh, wealth, world, glam, apparent religion, spread 24,000 miles wide and about one sixteenth of an inch deep. It doesn't have any substance. It's the show. It's the beat. It's the creator of modern worship, the twin sister of the rave. It's the gyrating toward experience. It's short on information, but so long on being relevant and hip and transparent and real. Coffee is at every turn, not of this world sticker on every Les Paul guitar, and money flows like a river between the Christian concerts and the Christian sponsored events held in mega structures filled with Christian believers that follow Joel Osteen and all the mega churches out there. One church I visited over Christmas literally printed on their program as a means to be relevant and there and in with it. We don't care, this is a paraphrase, we don't care if you believe as long as you belong. We don't care if you believe as long as you belong. Do you know what the early Christian church was about? Believers. People who said, I believe, that's why I belong. We have become churches that are seeking to embrace the culture and not care if they believe or not as long as they belong to the machine. It's amazing. Do they realize that the early Christians publicly said, I believe first, and then they belonged to a list of people who are going to be fed to the lions? You see, that's how it worked. And yet these guys, this church, the largest church in Utah, by the way, has that on their program that they hand out to everybody in there. We don't care if you believe as long as you belong. That is what's happened to the church in its petition to try to get big and, and significant and relevant.
See, Laodiceans want entertainment. They want to be engaged in relevant dialogue and purpose-driven activities. Uh, they want to be the spice of the earth, but not the salt of the earth. They want to be a neon sign, but not the light, you see. And how has this come to be? The blame in the end, the cause in the end, I am certain, God forgive me if I'm wrong, the end is because they aren't taught the word. The word is lacking in their churches. They have been taught the philosophies and ways of men and now women. Uh, they read Christian books. We're going to show you a commercial in a minute for books that we offer. It's for the ministry to support it. But read your Bible a thousand times more than you read any book that you get from us. But these people, they read Christian books like The Shack and The Outhouse and uh, whatever else is out there. They read those and feel significant and important. Uh, they're so busy doing Christianity, they have very little time to be a Christian to others or to God. So, but in the end, the ultimate blame lies with the pastors, with the shepherds who, seeking to feed themselves, have neglected to feed the flock. Now, their congregants want candy. They don't want the milk and meat of the word. They want in-and-out church visits. They want anonymity. And, uh, or they want to belong to the social Christian club. Uh, they want to do everything but learn the word of God. We're going to focus our attentions on these two aspects of American evangelicalism in, on the next, uh, over the next few months. It's my prayer, truly, that every pastor would get mad at me if they want, hate me, but change their ways. That every pastor on this Easter Sunday, who cares if it's Easter, stand up and say, we're going to read the word together today. Have the guts to stand up and say, open your Bibles. We're going to read from the Word of God today. This is what it says. And have everybody say, but I thought we were going to have an Easter program. And, and my son's dressed in his newest stuff to get eggs and chocolate. And, eh, eh. No, read the Word. That is what changed lives. And so I petitioned the pastors to do it. And I would petition you, if you go to your pastor and, and lovingly and, and kindly say, Pastor, can we start hearing the word in our church? And if they say, well, no, that's not really the direction we're going to take, walk from it and go to a church that will teach it. No matter where you are in this world, it doesn't matter. Walk from that church and get active and participative in a church that teaches the word to you while you are there. All right. So uh, as I prepare to read the emails that we have instead of the calls, the calls will be coming when we get to the Hot Mass Studios. Uh, give us a chance to peddle some of our products. Welcome back. Listen, I think there's a difference between ministry and church, and, uh, but that's my justification. Things support the ministry, and that's why we do what we do. 
and if you criticize, that's fine because I can, I'll, I'll listen and maybe there's room for us to grow. All right, uh, from Henry, Mr. McCraney, so formal Henry, Mr. McCraney. I'm a Protestant born again Christian and my Mormon friends always claim to be Christians too. What's the best response I can give to my Mormon friends if they claim to be Christian? It's tough. Uh, first and foremost, know your audience. So understand the type of person that you're dealing with. Uh, and you can use the word. You can open it up to them. And really, the, the biggest element of what makes a person a Christian, in my opinion, is not the makeup of Christ. The Mormons can have their faulty makeup of Him and all that. I think it's, do you believe you are a sinner? And do you believe that you are saved by His works and His righteousness and not your own? That is the primary difference between any Christian and, uh, and uh, anybody who's not. So if you really want to get to brass tacks, I would suggest, Henry, that you focus on Jesus and you just kind of articulate clearly. I just want you to understand what our position is and you can use passages to support that. Now what they're going to do is they're going to turn to James chapter 2. And we can talk about that. We have a show on that. It's called James Chapter 2 in our archives, hotm.tv. You can go to that and you can learn about how to respond using James Chapter 2 contextually and what it, he, James was really saying. Uh, but bottom line, uh, you just say, look, at, I, we couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. And so Jesus came and he did it. And we look to him in faith. We follow him in love. And that is what it means to be a Christian. My LDS friend, you can say you believe that but you don't. And then you, and you explain to him why. Because they have temples and garment wearing and tithing paying and Sabbath obeying and missions to attend and home teachings to do and all that other stuff that they're about. So focus on Jesus, what he did, what he means to you as a Christian, and what he means to Latter-day Saints doctrinally, not their personal uh, opinion. Also, just to let you know, not to belabor this, but you know, there's others, there's a shock and awe method. You can go to utlm.org. That's a Christian uh, uh, website that uses all original LDS material to show what they really teach. Go to utlm.org and you can get a whole bunch of information about their history. The shock and awe method is to give your friends this. Did you know Joseph Smith had 33 wives? Did you know that five of them were under the age of 19? Did you know he was in his mid-30s when he took them as wives? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That shock and awe method sometimes works with a certain type of LDS person. But if you get those who have the blinders on, they, I don't care what you show them. They're not going to do that. So the John 3.3 method is good. That's using Jesus and trying to see, have you been born again? And so I would suggest the, to do this, Henry. And I would suggest you do this with anybody who's not a, a believer. I, I give you a challenge. Go to God. Say, hey, Lord, God, whoever you are, uh, I want to know if you're there. My friend tells me that you are. I want you to reveal yourself to me. And let them have that experience with Him directly. When that occurs, when God does operate on their heart and makes them a new creation in Christ, a new man or woman, they won't be perfect by any means, but when they start to see that they have changed, they'll understand the true and living God and go from there. Uh, this is from, I'm not going to read that one. Uh, this is about a kid. He was LDS. A lot of these are LDS related. We still get those because they still think that's what we're doing. And he says that he admitted to his bishop when he was 14 uh, to doobie usage, Copenhagen playboys. And he was suspended as a holder of the priesthood. And uh, he's just had a hard time. 
And so the same, uh, same res uh, advice I would give to you, and that is go on, uh, Dave is his name, and seek God, seek Christ. And I think in the rest of your email, you do say you have done that. Got another one. It says, hello. Uh, first, let me start off by saying that I am a Mormon, and I will always be a Mormon. You can cut a lot of the work you do with people of other faiths, whether they be Catholics or Buddhists or Mormons, and just say, if I was able to show you, prove to you, that something of your church, your faith was not correct, would you leave it? And if they say, no, I would not, you might as well just walk away. Because their mind has been set, they're not, no information is going to sway them. And so that's what this person is saying. I'll tell you right now, I'm a Mormon, but I will always be a Mormon. However, sometimes those emphatic statements reveal a real insecurity and a fear. And so when you respond to them, sometimes they'll come uh, back. Anyway, his first point is he has had a lot of feelings about what truth is uh, and he says my first question to you is how do you compare the feeling that you now get with the feelings you had as an active Latter-day Saint did I have feelings when I was a Mormon did I have feelings when I was a humanist when I was a nihilist when do I have feelings when I uh, relate to the things of this world I have feelings in every one of those areas do I have feelings when I hear the national anthem played at a sporting event absolutely all those things invoke feelings. And Mormonism invoked the same type of emotional feeling responses. The music, the oboe playing, the nice lace uh, flowered covered tables, all those things of feelings, the tearful, lacrimonious uh, testimonies given from the pulpit, all those things produce a feeling, a family, oneness. That's all good stuff. I get the same thing when I, when I hear songs about America, for example. The difference is when I became a Christian, the, the best way to liken it to would be I now could see. It's a sense, but it's not a feeling. I can't feel the things I see. I can, I can see them, and it's different. It would be like being in this room if it was completely dark, and suddenly someone flipped the light on, and I could see everything. That's the difference between the feelings I had as a Latter-day Saint, as a humanist, as a person of the world, and the feelings it gave me, and then becoming a Christian. Remember Jesus said, a peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as this world gives it, give it I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So, with the new vision comes the certainties that I have seen this, I know this, I get it intellectually in my heart. There are feelings that come with Christianity. There's emotional feelings that we have, responses that God has given us, but they are not primary. That's how I would explain that. Uh, the next one, he talks about the Bible. Next one, he talks about the Book of Mormon. I'm not going to cover those. Finally, he says, you know, I've seen a lot of your shows, and you do a lot of picking on uh, the Lord's uh, leaders, mortal men and women trying their best to live their lives and uh, he seems to think that, I think the church isn't true because they make mistakes. It's not true at all. In fact, I, I, I know Christianity is, does not rise and fall on the purity of the pastors who lead the church today. Uh, what people do in their personal lives is irrelevant to me in terms of the truth that they represent. Here's the problem with Mormonism. Joseph Smith, your founder, Brigham Young, second in command after Joseph, both of them taught things that said, God says this. This is what God says. 
Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. The prophet speaks and they would say things and they would make polygamy a part of God's rule. They would say Adam was God and they would call that a, a doctrine, true and true. All kinds of things these men would do. I don't care that Joseph had uh, illicit affairs. I don't care that Joseph Smith had a temper or that he got angry with people or that he drank or, or used tobacco. That, that does not make or prove Mormonism to be true or false. I care that he said, God said this, you better do it. That's where it falls, my friend. So, and that's the difference between the two. Uh, I think we are out of time. I have a question on once saved, always saved. And uh, bottom line, I have four minutes. So I'm gonna, let me give you some references to look up, okay? It's going to be one of the pernicious doctrines we talk about, and that is five-point Calvinism. Do I believe God is sovereign? Absolutely. And I think in that sovereignty, he gives people an ability to choose. And uh, all the other things that go along with it. I do not believe I completely reject five-point Calvinism. Uh, some of the points I agree with to a certain degree, but certainly not limited atonement. Certainly not once saved, always saved. Certainly, uh, which is perseverance of the saints. And things like, uh, certainly not total depravity. Uh, but in terms of once saved, always saved, get your pens and pencils, write these passages down, use them. You ready? Second uh, Peter 2, 19 through 21. Read that and read it in context. Hebrews 10, 26. Hebrews 3, 6. Romans 8, 13. Second Peter 1, 9. Colossians 1, 23. First Timothy 4, 1. First Timothy 5, 12, 11 through 12. I'm not sure if that one fits. Hebrews 6, 1 through 10, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, and John chapter 15, where Jesus describes uh, the vine abiding in the vine and what happens to those branches that do not abide in the vine. Okay, read all those contextually and try to answer the Calvinistic approach that once a person is saved, they are always saved. Do you lose your salvation? Never. Never, never. Do you lose it because you're, you've committed sins and you've fallen back to your old ways? Never, never, never. But you walk away from salvation when you cease to be a man or woman of faith. And all of those passages I just gave you relate to, are you abiding in the vine in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did, and how to walk? We're going to wrap it up with that. You guys, it's been great seeing you. See us next week. We should be, God willing, streaming from our new set, new fandangled set, that looks like the old set, and from our new studios at HOTMSS. See you then. Glory to the shepherds of